Welcome to The Brazilian Beat, episode 92 with Jovino Santos Neto. Join us as we get to know the Brazilian percussion music making community, one interview at a time. This is Diana. And this is Courtney. Hello. Hey, folks. How's it going? Good. We uh, survived our heat wave here in the Pacific Northwest. Convection oven. (laughs) We're back at it. We're back giving you another podcast. This was such a great conversation. I, I loved the conversation and I loved editing it. This, yeah, I'm excited about this one. Yeah, it was a different one for us, but uh, we really had a good time and it was such a nice chat. Mm-hmm. On today's show, we have Jovino Santos Neto, a three-time Latin Grammy nominee, and he's a master pianist, composer, and arranger. He's one of the most important Brazilian musicians working today. He's currently based in Seattle, Washington, and he has throughout his career been closely affiliated with Brazilian master Hermeto Pascual. He was an integral part of Pascual's group from 1977 to 1992, where he fine-tuned his artistry, performing around the world and co-producing several legendary records. Jovino's personal style is a creative blend of energetic grooves, deep harmonies, telepathic improvisation, Lyrical melodies and great ensemble playing, always inspired and informed by the colorful richness of Brazilian music. His compositions include samba, choro, baião, xochi, forró, marcha, and many more styles rooted in centuries-old musical tradition while pointing to new and adventurous harmonic languages. Currently, Jovino leads his Seattle-based quinteto and trio. He taught piano and composition at Cornish College of the Arts for 26 years. He can also be heard around the world as a piano soloist, working with symphony orchestras, jazz big bands, chamber music groups, and in collaboration with musicians such as his mentor Hermeto Pascual, Bill Frizzell, Paquito Di Rivera, Ayrto Moreira, Claudio Hojiti, David Sanchez, Joe Locke, Anat Cohen, and many more. Since moving to the U.S. from his native Rio de Janeiro in 1993, Jovino has continued to tour the world and to record prolifically. He has recorded multiple CDs with his Seattle-based Quinteto, including Canto do Rio, nominated for a Latin Grammy in 2004. In 2006, Adventure Music released Roda Carioca with an all-Brazilian lineup including Joyce, Hermeto Pascual, and several other notable musicians, earning him his second Latin Grammy nomination. In 2007, after receiving a special commission from Brazil's Petrobras, Jovino composed and recorded Ama do Nordeste, a musical journey translating the essence of northeastern Brazil into melodies, rhythms, and improvisations, including regional, universal, imaginary, and real stories. In 2008, he released a piano duo with Weber Iago, live at Caramor, also nominated for a Latin Grammy Award in 2009. In 2010, Veja o Som, See the Sound was released, a double-disc collection of duos with musicians such as Bill Frizzell, Joe Locke, Paquito Di Rivera, Anat Cohen, Joao Donato, Ayrton Moreira, Joyce, Paula Morelenbaum, and Monica Salmaso, among others. In 2011, Adventure Music released Cohenchi, Current, featuring his quinteto performing all new original music. Chovina also recorded Curis, a piano duo with Brazilian pianist André Memari, 
celebrating the music of Hermeto Pasquale in 2016, and Por Causa de a live recording with his quinteto celebrating the music of Antonio Carlos Chauvin in 2018. Chauvin's compositions have been performed by the Seattle Symphony Orchestra, NDR Big Band in Hamburg, Swiss Jazz Orchestra, and by numerous jazz and chamber music groups. Jovino gives lectures, clinics, and master classes worldwide on a variety of musical topics, including the connection between music and nature. Jovino has received commissions from the Chesswater Foundation, IAJE, ASCAP, CMA Doris Duke Foundation, Jack Straw Foundation, the City of Seattle, For Culture, Artist Trust, and Meet the Composer. He has been artist in residence at some of the most prestigious music schools in the world. In 2012, he was inducted into the Seattle Jazz Hall of Fame, and his quinteto won as Best Northwest Acoustic Group in the Golden Ear Awards by Earshot Jazz in 2012, 2015, and 2018. He also was awarded an Artist Trust Fellowship in Music in 2012. He composed a live score to the 1927 silent film The Unknown, and also premiered a new piece for orchestra, Milonga da Emilia, in 2018 in Denmark. His orchestration of Hermeto Pascual's Suite Universal was premiered in January 2019 by the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra. Jovino was featured on NPR's Tiny Desk Concert in October of 2019. Well, it was, like we said before, it was really just a pleasure to speak with Jovino. He's really charming and had such great stories um, to share with us, um, and we're glad that he joined us. It, it was kind of like an out of the norm kind of um, interview for us, but it was so great. Yeah, totally charmed. We're totally charmed by him. I know you guys will be too when you listen to this. But before we get to that, we want to talk about Hichimo Solidario. Um, we spoke with Sheena recently, Sheena Duastasio, who is running Hichimo Solidario, and we will release that conversation soon. But um, just to let you guys know, the need still exists in Brazil. Vaccines are coming out. We've got some more help, but but the need still exists. So, And now they're adding things like coats because it's really cold in Brazil right now. So people are hurting in that way too. So they're trying to provide that kind of um, aid as well. Yeah. And the word is getting out. People are, I, I heard people talking about it. So it's, it's right. a good thing. You guys are supporting, you guys are stepping up and helping. So thank you so much for doing that. If you want to know how you can help, you can send money via PayPal. The, um, the PayPal email contact is on our website at thebrazilianbeat.com so check it out there and first and foremost we'd like you to if you have extra cash it'd be great for you to help um Hichimo Solitario but if you know you have some extra bucks uh and you'd love to be a part of this uh podcast community join us on ko-fi.com and be part of our little community. We really appreciate all the help that folks have given us uh, over the last, has it been a year? About, yeah. Yeah, so thank, thanks to all of you that have donated. We really appreciate it. Um, and we also have that link to Kofi on our website, but I'll read it off to you. It's ko-fi.com slash the Brazilian beat. And thank you. A free way to support us is to rate us on Apple Podcasts. And tell your friends, tell your Samba Nerd friends about this podcast. And thanks for listening. Yes. Oh, and you can also subscribe. Subscribe to the podcast. (laughs) 
This podcast is also sponsored by GoSamba.net. I am getting tons of drums in every month. New shipments are coming, so check it out, GoSamba.net. And uh, but she's getting lots of orders for drums, drums too. Yeah, they're so like, don't miss your chance. They're flying off the shelves as fast as I can bring them in. It's crazy. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so that's pretty exciting. GoSamba.net. All right, we hope you guys enjoy this episode. So the way we like to start is um, we'd like to get background on people. We like to hear how they grew up and when they first heard music and was music in their family. And you, Jovino, have such a huge career. Um, You've played with legends and you've done your own amazing projects. You've gotten nominated for three Latin Grammys. Um, But we'd like to know, we'd like to start from the beginning was your family musical like when did you first when did you first discover music and fall in love with it hmm. thank you wow nice questions thank you appreciate that mm-hmm. um well as you know I'm, i was born in brazil more specifically in rio de janeiro and more specifically in the west zone of rio which is totally different than if you ever been to rio go to like copacabana ipanema that was called the south zone that's one thing the west zone is a different universe so that's where i'm from this used to be known in the days when I was born as the rural zone of Rio. I mean, there was a lot of farms and mm. green spaces and forests. And that's where I grew up there. I was born in 1954. So in a kind of like a working class neighborhood, mm. there used to be a munitions army, a munitions factory for the army. So a lot of people, including my maternal grandfather, worked in the munitions factory. And then my grandfather, who came from the northeast part of Brazil, he set up a pharmacy there as early as the 19-teens. He came wow. from, so he, he started a pharmacy, pretty much made the building and the building became a pharmacy. And my father was born into the pharmacy and I was born into the pharmacy. So this mm-hmm. is a business that runs in the family. So in, in answer to your question, people are musical in my family, pharmaceutically speaking. <laughs> 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 you could use a lot of shakers around. Yes, yeah, exactly. A lot of powders and little <laughs> capsules. They were like the old school pharmacy where they had to actually make make the medicaments. You know, compounding. compounding mm-hmm. Yeah, compounding where you. Pr- wow. So I grew up in the lab with uh, you know little drops of this. It's really, it's really a alchemic alchemic experience, like a witch's, where you're making these powders and pastes and stuff. Mm-hmm. That some of it was kept in a, a secret like a closet where you had hmm. a special key to open because of stuff like opium and things like this mm. that you could put a little drop here and there or even explosive stuff. As a kid, I used to love playing with some explosive powders that got outlawed. <laughs> I bet. Because of, uh, it was the Brazilian dictatorship, right? And uh, starting in 1964. Mm. So they outlawed any explosive powders because we can make little cans fly over the roof of the, the, roof of the house. <laughs> so the music came because you were like, hey, you're a fish. Do you ever heard about water? They say, what water? You know, because you were immersed in the music mm. in many different possibilities, for instance. Um, the neighbors next door to my parents' house, they had what's known as terreiro. You guys know about candomblé? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, this mm-hmm. is umbanda, which is kind of candomblé added with the native Brazilian elements, which is the most prevalent religion in that part of Rio. Everybody's Catholic, but everybody lights candles on Monday nights for the souls. And, uh, and the, the 
rituals, the trance rituals, all accompanied by drums, were happening on the other side of the wall from my bedroom. So I would wow. go to sleep listening to this back, 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 and people chanting and singing. On the other hand, about half a mile down the train line from my bedroom, there was a Mosidaji Independente School of mm. Samba. So I would hear the samba rehearsals coming in through the wind. But when it comes through the wind, it's kind of weird. It's not like being there. It's kind of like a phase shifter. It comes and goes. Like you hear, like 3 a.m., I'm sleeping, then I wake up. Then we just fade out and come back again, depending which way the wind is blowing. So that was the other musical experience. I had an aunt. That my father's older sister, who actually studied music, so she actually had an accordion, but she never really played. She never, I never heard her play music once in my life. But she studied 12 years of conservatory. Hmm. That is an interest, another side of that. Mm -hmm. And the rest was just like once I realized that the radio was so important when I grew up. The radio stations would have very interesting, you know, some of them were very eclectic. When I was a teenager, there was a radio station uh, which was run by the newspaper Jornal do Brasil, known as JB. And they had, you know, in one day listening to the radio, you could listen, of course, to Frank Sinatra and Antonio Carlos Jobim and also progressive rock. In the afternoon, they, they kind of licensed some programs from the BBC of London of like the, like, I'm talking 1970, 71, 72. So we'll be hearing all those amazing British bands that nobody else knew about, but we could hear for one hour in the afternoon what was called 60 mm. Minutes of Contemporary Music. So that was another musical element. And I started taking piano lessons when I was 12. So I took some classical piano lessons, but then I got sick of it because, you know, just doing the same. I know I love the music, but when the teacher started to give me some weird sonatinas to play that I, mm -hmm. I had no emotional connection with this music, mm. I got distracted. I said, no, that's not. I've always been extremely distractible. So unless something calls my attention totally, fully, I will just drift to something else. And that's what happened. So music was like, I don't want to do this. I'd rather play ball with my friends. So, but the six months that I had of lessons taught me enough that I could actually go to the store downtown and get the sheet music for the music that I liked. So I like Bach. Yes, I bought some Bach inventions. And I could, you know, as we say, slash and burn through them. <laughs> Very little knowing about. But I could play this slowly, this music, and that was giving me a lot of pleasure. So whenever I heard yeah. something, so I started, this is a time when I became a teenager. So you go listen to the radio, go out to dances with your friends, you know, middle school, high school kind of age. And the music I was listening on the radio was also very appealing. I loved the, the Brazilian kind of like Brazilian rock. But then we had these TV shows with uh, musical festivals. So that's in a musical festival broadcast to the entire country. That would take place over three or four hours in, in the evening. You huh. could hear like Caetano Veloso, Edu Lobo, Gilberto Gil, Hermeto Pascual, Ayrton Moreira, and uh, all the great composers to talk about, Chico Buarque de Holanda, Antônio Carlos Jobim, Elise Regina. So these people wow. are being piped into our bedroom, into our mm -hmm. living rooms uh, a lot. And you liked them. There were shows whenever they became popular, like Elisa Regina became very popular in 1964. So they gave her a show together with the singer Jair Rodriguez. You probably have heard of him. He's the father of Jair de Oliveira, who's a 
you know, mm. samba singer contemporary. Anyway, mm. Jean Rodriguez and Elisa Regina had a duo. And in the, their show, they would bring guests and they would sing with all the guests and there were live, uh, live arrangements of music and very jazzy and very, mm. you know, bands with nine piece with horns and uh, brand new arrangements just for that broadcast. So this kind of stuff was also a factor of formation. But anyway, I've talked too much. <laughs> No, oh, we're here for. <laughs> we want to hear we're enthralled. <laughs> Ask yeah. me more questions, though. <laughs> Man, that's interesting. Do you think that um, the, I mean, it sounds like the quality of the level of music that was available on the radio and on television was really high. Do you think that's still the case? Well, it it was high, but if I keep saying this too much, I sound like those guys in the Muppets show that sit on the, the old guys. <laughs> and they say, yeah. oh, it used to be really good. Now everything sucks. These people, oh, what are these kids listening to? And I really don't think that way. I just spent last week, actually last week, you're not going to believe this. I listened to 300 recordings, sampled, not the entire, but I listened like every five minutes of an entire record just because I wanted to know what's going on. Mm. with what's coming out. These are all records released in the last year mm. and mostly mm -hmm. from Latin America. So I heard amazing music from Venezuela. We hear the Venezuela is like such a mess. I heard music from Venezuela this week that, damn, these guys are killing it. Mm. And from Cuba and from Mexico and from Brazil and from some, so the music, all these places that are going through these horrible times right now, they're producing music like I can't believe it. it's beautiful. So in other words, I'm not that old guy saying used to be better in the past. But yes, used to be better in the past because I I could the little the the thing about the music back then is that it was completely, utterly invisible. Hmm. So you can lay down at dark, go to bed, and put a little transistor radio next to your bed and just listen to music. Actually, I would put short waves and listen like the BBC and the Voice of America at night in the dark, it's beautiful. Or then lay down outside and pick the binoculars and look at the stars or listen to this music. So hmm. that in a way was very inspiring in the sense that you're connecting the music with your life. And as you get older and you go into teenage years and you know, go to your, what do you call it, your peer group, you know, your, your kids your age that you go out every week and dance and romances and stories and carnival. And all these things created a scene that had a soundtrack. When I was like 16, the soundtrack, believe it, Sergio Mendes. Mm -hmm. Sergio Mendes in Brazil, 66, in 1966. So <laughs> this for us in Brazil was actually for my crew, for my crowd, you know, for the guys and girls I hang out with. They, that was a very interesting piece of music, kind of music, because first of all, they sang with an American accent. We were hearing dozens of singers who sang Brazilian, perfect. But when these girls, I mean, Lenny Hall, and what's the name of the other girl, I don't recall, but Sergio Mendes, and it's like real American, but in a way for us, 15 year olds in Brazil, this was like, damn, this is sexy. This mm. woman is speaking with an accent. And that was the stuff we listened to because first of all, it was very well done, Sergio Mendes, amazing producer you listen to Maskinada today and it sounds amazing yeah like the quality mm -hmm. of the recording the sound the arrangement he's playing so he's a brilliant musician and so no expiration date on his work 
Oh, there was just a thing on PBS on. I know. Uh, He's celebrating his uh, anniversary of um, being a musician. I don't know how many years, 200 or something like this, you know. We'll have to watch it. It's on. Yeah, it's I on PBS. Missed, I missed it. So. Oh, I think you can probably. Yeah, uh, find it online it, or something. Yeah. So tell us when. Sounds like music was the wallpaper of your life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like you're saying, the water you swam in. Um, can you tell us how you started your, how you became a performer? Like, how did that transition happen? Well, um, for me, performing the music has always been natural. For some reason, I do not have stage fright. A lot of artists do, and I respect that. There's people for whom going on stage is a source of extreme tension and mm -hmm. stress. Oh my God, what if I make a mistake? Or whatever it is, you could be just unconsciously freak out. It's like if you hang me by a string above the Grand Canyon, that's the kind of fear that some people feel when they go on stage. And yeah. I never had that. I remember as a kid participating in like kindergarten place, I had no problem walking on stage and whatever <laughs> it is that you have to do in the kindergarten, you know? But it yeah, was always, yeah. yeah, dude, let's do this. It's fine. So I'm not saying huh. this to brag. I'm just saying... The kind of genes or personality or whatever took that part out. So what I do when I get when I play to people, for people, is I feel extremely excited. For me, audience, it doesn't matter if it's one person. I mean, I guess the biggest crowd I played to is a hundred thousand when a festival in Sao Paulo once in 1981. And I play for, of course, for one person, two people. <laughs> So the, the, the gamut is very wide. So I think that it doesn't matter how many people are listening to you. In a way, you make those people that are listening to you your muse. That's how it works for me. And sometimes it could be even a person that's not in the room. <laughs> I could just imagine a person. It could be what I call my imaginary friend or maybe somebody I know, maybe somebody I don't know. I could just imagine a person listening to what I'm playing. And my goal is to make that person smile or close the eyes and say, wow. So that's it. So I want to impress someone, but it's not necessarily the people I'm playing for. It's this muse, which could be somebody I'm playing for, but not necessarily. So yeah. that's the part of a performing that for me, it's like, how do you want to die? Oh, I want a stage, would be cool. Yeah, boom. You know, kind of like a break. Boom, boom, then you're gone. <laughs> what what was your first performance and what type of music i remember i remember in teenage years or even when i was like 12 13 but once i started playing music very soon i got invited to join a rock band mm. in my neighborhood actually the next neighborhood over those are those are the serious dudes they had long hair i couldn't <laughs> have long hair but this guy showed up with long hair and they said, hey, man, we heard you're really good. You want to play with our band? So I said, yes. And I was probably 15, 16. So I started rehearsing with them. We played a couple of gigs. But immediately, we started to compose mm. and create original music. So very soon, our band, there was like a rock cover band of Three Dog Night and the Rolling Stones and mm. some blues stuff, became a band playing original music in mm. totally unheard of and unknown. We never made a record, never made a recording, nothing. But that kind of thing was very inspiring because I got to play with people and come up with ideas, musical ideas. So this kind of built up. And in 1974, I started to 
actually 73, I actually was admitted into the biology program at the Federal University of Rio to study biology. My pharmaceutical background pointed me in that direction. I didn't mm. want to be a doctor. A lot of my friends were being doctors, but I don't want to become a biologist. So I ran the big test that happens in the Maracanã, the big stadium in Brazil where you ran the test. And I got, not only did I get it, actually it was the first place in the biology, the Institute of Biology. So I came in with very good credentials, being having very good grades. And I studied a year and a half biology at the Federal University in Rio until I met this guy, guy from a half Canadian, half British and half Brazilian, three halves. <laughs> and the, this guy said, hey, my brother's studying Canada. You want to come to Canada and study biology there? And I said, sure. I mean, I had no money, right? This is, I'm not a rich family. This is a middle class. My father's a pharmacist. But for some reason, my grandfather passed away. He left me a little bit of money that I actually was able to pay for the trip. Hmm. So I came to Montreal and I stayed in Montreal for three years, studied biology at McDonald College of McGill University with my friend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then I met a ton of musicians and I was part of a band called Melange in Quebec, in Montreal. And then again, all original music, we rehearsed every night. We had to haul our instruments in a big old car to a drummer's mm -hmm. house for rehearsal, but we played a few gigs, we did some recordings, so the band was called Melange. So this was 1974, 1977. In 1977, I graduated from college and then I looked at her career as a musician and I looked at the kind of like scene in the clubs, the bands. It was all great bands, but you had to play some real dive bars. Mm. You know, everybody smoking and drinking. It was kind of like a nice. Yeah. <laughs> I was kind of like, you know, natural foods, biology guy, the Amazon, you know, ecology. And then they had to spend your evenings in a place full of smoke that mm. actually were more like hangout places that really didn't. There are maybe two people listening to the music and everybody else not. Right. So that I said, nah, I don't hmm. think I don't think so. You know, so I said I'm gonna go back to biology and just go to my post post grad in the Amazon. That's where I want to go. I'm gonna live in the middle of the woods. I'm gonna hang up from a hammock and play with dolphins <laughs> and monkeys. So that was my next plan. That was 1977. <laughs> so I applied for a master's program at the Research Institute of the Amazon in Manaus which meant that I had to come to Rio to write a test. And that was November 1977. I came back to my neighborhood and it turns out that Hermeto Pascual had moved about five miles away from my house. Oh, wow, hmm. I didn't know that. And I didn't know that either. It was like, what? <laughs> Hermeto's living there? I mean, I had heard of his music. I'd seen some shows. I was totally blown away. He used to live in Sao Paulo. And I said, what is Hermeto doing here in the west yeah. zone of Rio? And it turns out that his father had bought a house there years before. And Hermeto moved from Sao Paulo with his family to Rio and bought a house there too. <laughs> and this was like where my buddies lived. That's where I hang out all the time there. So my good friend, Jacinto, and he said, man, Hermeto lives in that house over there. And I said, nah, not Hermeto Pascual, of course. No, yeah, that one, that white guy, the albino guy. <laughs> and, and I said, let me go knock. And this was right before writing the test for my postgrad. So I knocked on Hermeto's door. I mean, he welcomed me into his home and point That's blank sweet. on a Sunday, he asked me if I wanted to play a gig on a Friday. <laughs> and I go, oh my God, uh, no, no, I cannot, no, you misunderstood me. I'm not asking for a gig. You know, I got, you know, something to go. He says, it's okay. You don't have to commit. You can just play this one gig on Friday. Then you go and do your, your studies. 
the temptation was too big. I went, I got hooked, and I stayed 15 years. I didn't go to Manaus. I got the, the scholarship, the fellowship to teach and everything, but I said, thanks, guys, but no thanks. I'm going to stay in Rio and become a freelance musician, which that was my life for 15 years, from 77 to 92, living in the same, on the same street as I met with my family, my wife, my kids, and uh, that was our life. Rehearse that seems so day. random. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that happens so randomly. <laughs> I know. Isn't it funny the way things kind of click into place? And nowadays when you look back, you see, oh, of course, it made total sense. But when it's happening to you, you go, oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow, that's when, So did you learn English when you went to Canada? This is like a side note. That I learned English when I was 13 years old because I loved the language. I had an aunt who moved to the United States and married a U.S. sailor, went to live in Michigan. And I have two cousins born in the U.S. Hmm. So I was really home. And I loved the music. All the music I liked was in English. So I started I taking lessons through television when I was like 13. Hmm. And then I also started taking lessons at a, a, a place called the Brazil United States Institute hmm. where you could go for classes. And something, I know, talk about random things. My father bought the wrong textbook. So instead of buying the textbook for the first year, he bought a textbook for the third year. And I started <laughs> so you get super hard. Back. Yeah, but you know what? I came in and I got straight into third year. So it took me three years to finish a six-year course. Nice. Which I was done right when I was like 13, 16, 17. I was right there. I did. So I, by that point, in, that, in those days, when you study English, it's not... Conversation. I mean, it is awesome, but you read Hemingway, James Joyce, William Saroyan. I mean, you're reading literature of amazing yeah. types and uh, and stuff that people here don't read. And yeah, and read. those are like yeah. obscure words and things, you know. That... I know. At the same time, when I was listening to like Aretha Franklin, James Brown, Wilson Pickett uh -huh. on the radio and putting together the English with the music I was hearing on the right. radio, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. So that was a big... For me, one thing, another random fact that helped a lot is that my father is a radio amateur, besides being mm -hmm. a pharmacist. So he was into electronics and stuff. So uh -huh. he won as a prize in a contest for a radio, I'm, ham radio, right? That's uh -huh. yeah. He won a little reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder, Sony. A little guy. And he actually, so I kind of took over the little piece of gear and I started, I found a way with my little transistor radio, which was a battery radio, to hook up little alligator clips in the back of it and record the music onto the reel. So whenever that tune I wanted to, hear, to, to learn came on the radio, I could go click and record it. And so that means I could play back next to the piano. And so the piano came because my sister was taking lessons. So I started taking lessons because of her. So that kind of connects the dots. Hmm. Now, could you talk about the transition from being a student? You were planning on going to the Amazon to, did you go, start touring right away or did you play locally a lot? We started touring right away. I mean, I started in November, 1977. Uh, we were already playing gigs all through 1978. In September 1978, we played a festival in Sao Paulo. That was the first time there was a jazz festival in Brazil. So this was a festival that took a whole week, two weeks actually, two weeks of music every night. 
and her meta was supposed to play one of the closing evenings of the second week. And I was in the band. And that concert lasted about four and a half hours. And we had as guests in our set, Stan Getz, Chick Corea, and John McLaughlin. Holy cow. Crazy. Yeah, these are people that I listened to when I was in Canada, listened to progressive rock and jazz rock, Weather Report and Miles Davis. So that thing for me was like, oh my God, these guys, I'm playing with them. And that was like not even a year being in the band. So that was like an amazing musical experience because you get to see the people that you always idolize right there, playing music with them. And they all respected her method so much. And suddenly you start to realize hmm. this thing you're doing is like actually, what do you say? PFD. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big freaking deal, you know? No. When Chick Corea passed away, you posted a story about playing at that festival yeah. and a little bit about um, that experience. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, this is exactly what happened because uh, as we were getting ready for the festival, we were working on this very difficult music that Hermeto had composed and continues to compose. I talked to Hermeto and said, hey, I'm a little intimidated because, you know, I've been a fan of Chick Corea, returned forever, forever. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, now he's going to come and we're going to play in the same night. Hermeto said, you know, you know, know who you are. You're a young guy who loves music and you're learning a lot. Who is Chikoria? He's a young guy who loves music and is learning a lot. He was not so young, but he was, you know, so he said, we're all on the same path. We're all learning music. Some of us have been learning for longer, others for less. But it doesn't, you should never look at somebody, even if you think they're amazing, to look up to them as if they're some kind of a, on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. He says, we're all the same road. Sometimes they pass by you, sometimes you pass by them. So, and I can tell you, Hermeto told me that, I can tell you that the music that we're playing at this festival, in terms of complexity, form, level, musicality, challenge, technique, every, every angle you want to look at it, it's going to impress everybody, including Chikorea and everybody who will be there. Because this is not, we're not fooling around here. I'm writing some very serious music and we're learning stuff that would take weeks to learn like four bars. Very complex music. Hmm. So there we go, fast forward. It was the day of my birthday, my 24th birthday. And now we're playing this music on stage at the Sao Paulo Festival. And right when I'm playing that piece, which is a sweet hermetic composed, I look to my right and there's chicks standing like right behind hmm. me, looking over my shoulder. And I'm playing, and instead of freaking out, I go, man, this is it. This is the thing we worked. And we played the whole piece, kaboom. It was not even a very open piece of improvisation. It was just everything written out, mm -hmm. mapped out, through composed. So the tune ends, kaboom, everybody. Chick comes, gives me a big hug, says, man, I have never had a lesson like this one right now. You guys, wow. <laughs> you guys taught me something amazing. And then, of course, he came in and sat in and played. John McLaughlin came, and then Stan Getz came. So the whole thing became just a celebration of music. And that, for me, was super hip as sort of like a validation, in a way, mm -hmm. that what I was doing. And also the fact that I had been trained to be a scientist. Mm -hmm. In a way, I had figured out a lot. I kind of like played that game, and I decoded it. I knew how to do very well. I knew how to get good grades. I knew how to be, to get like you know the, the endorsement of professors and that kind of stuff because you do it in a certain way. You know, 
you know, methodically you can do it. So I, I could do that. Now I was faced with something that had no logic. Music has no logic. I mean, it has its own logic, but it's not that logic. So here's stuff that I wanted to explain, and it was impossible. I couldn't explain it. I couldn't even decode it. I just had to play it like 500 times until I would feel what it, what it feels right. Kind of a complete darkness. But in a way, that appealed to me a lot more than going into the science world. Not that science doesn't have its mysteries, but soon you have to be in that kind of like a research grants and stuff like this and depending on funding. So it was kind of like the gig of the music. Mm -hmm. And with Hermeto, even though, I mean, we had no gig. I mean, sometimes three months, four months, not a single gig, no money. We never had a salary being in that band. So mm -hmm. this was something that really made us trust the music. When we had no gigs, we rehearsed more. And then we started the touring Europe, Brazil. We, we made several European tours and US tours as well. So Japan, so the kind of traveling woke up something me that I've always had, but just kind of like a nomadic spirit. Mm -hmm. So not only I love playing music, I love traveling. Going anywhere is good. Just feeling the road, airplane, boat, ship, train, whatever. I just get in and I want to go and play music. So when you put those things together, it's really what I'm doing until today. You were just mentioning to us uh, beforehand about traveling throughout the state this past weekend. So mm -hmm, exactly. it still continues, even if we can't travel that far sometimes. Oh, no, with the pandemic, you know, we've traveled. I haven't been in an airplane <laughs> since when? January 2020, when I came back from Spain. So, you know, it's okay. I'm not in a hurry. But mm -hmm. uh, we travel around. I bike, you know. I even do those things where you sit on the Peloton bike and you watch Oahu. Oh. You go to Maui, <laughs> cool. you go to Big Sur, and you do like 30-minute <laughs> rides, bike rides in Big Sur. I just actually, I biked Big Sur this morning. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I feel like we skipped something. So I feel like we skipped from you. I guess, I guess during that time when you... We're, we're playing piano. You had the piano teacher for six months, and then you would pull out pieces of sheet music that you liked, and then you would you would play things that you heard on the radio and play stuff you liked. Did you do a lot of personal practicing? Is that where you developed? It sounds like you know the bands you were in as you were in high school and older. You were you guys were playing every night together. Yep. Is that where you developed the all these skills? And yeah, in a way, yes. You had to work on your ears a lot because a lot yeah. of the music I wanted to play. There was no sheet music for it. I had to record it on my reel-to-reel -reel and continue playing. And then when I moved to Canada, uh, we were all doing very composed music, but it was all mem by memory. I never wrote that music down. It was just as, and then the drummer does bada doom ba ba psh, and then the guitar makes, you know, so it's kind of like that kind of rehearsal, you know, mouth uh -huh. rehearsal, we call it. And, uh, and never really, I, I had no skills to write the music that we were playing. But with Hermeto, I learned that. Hermeto wrote everything, and he showed me how to write everything. So learning with him, I was able to start the art of musical notation, which is something totally different than the art of composing. So you have to put the two together. And my work with Hermeto led me not only to play in the band, but also to work with orchestras, big bands, string quartets, mm. choirs. Everything he was writing for, I was kind of looking over his shoulder as he was doing the score. So I learned 
from a person who's totally self-taught. Remember, Hermeto is visually deficient. Mm. He, he never read a book in his life, but he can write orchestral scores. <laughs> that is mm. weird if you think about it. <laughs> he never read a newspaper or a book in his life, unless mm. something is like type super big that he can see. Hmm. He could not read it. His, eye, his eyesight as an albino is extremely... I once took him to a eye doctor in Austria and the guy freaked out. He says, does this gentleman walk in the street? I said, man, he takes buses. Yes, he walks. He's super quick with his eyes, but he cannot really see any details. But unless he's writing the music, he puts the paper on his nose and he puts all these little dots. That for me with a magnifying glass. So I learned scoring, orchestration, arrangement by being Hermeto's assistant. And mm -hmm. I still am, as a matter mm -hmm. of fact. That's still part of the work, even though I'm no longer in his band for 28 years now. I am still his copist, uh, archivist, mm. and librarian. <laughs> <laughs> so you hear what he's doing and you write it down? Yeah, that can be. Or he, he just sends me. I have these notebooks. that he, Every time I see him, he gives me notebooks. I just got in the mail oh. last week a folder with 50 pieces by a map. All wow. written. And his, his scores are like works of art. He does colors. and But my work huh. is to take this, put it into a finale, make it like you know, musically a score that it, we can send somewhere and play. So huh. this music is still spouting. It's still like flowing like a fountain. You know, he's like a fountain. Wow. How did your time, when did you stop touring with him? How did your time, how did that experience with Hermeto end? Well, it ended, you know, the same way that if you have a tree and the tree has a fruit and the fruit at one point gets ripe and just detaches from the tree. Mm -hmm. It was a very organic thing because for after 15 years, and I loved the work there. I mean, I was basically, I became more than the pianist in the band. I was the road manager, technician, accountant, banker, translator. Mm -hmm. uh, I became a lot of things. <clears throat> For fun because i enjoyed doing all those things but at one point that was also giving me a bit of burnout mm -hmm. and i was less and less focused on my own music because of all these extra tasks that i had to take care of so it felt natural there was a time for me to move on to something else so i decided to move to seattle straight to seattle to study conducting so i moved with my family i don't know anybody else's you know some people have done but i think of the Refugees that jump in a boat with their kids and wives and they go across the Mediterranean. I didn't do that, but in a way I came with wife and two kids, aged 11 and 8, to Seattle with no work visa, just to be a student. How are you going to maintain yourself? Mm. I, said, I don't know. We'll figure out something. <laughs> I mean, people do this alone, but to come with your family, I mean, it's kind of crazy. But in a way, it works exactly that way. Within, what, less than a year, I read had a work permit, a green card, hmm. we became citizens. Things happened, like random, but not random things. Like we bump into an immigration attorney in the store and suddenly start talking to a total stranger. Turns out he's an immigration attorney who helps you get your <laughs> wow. paperwork already for like allowing you to pay minimum per month hmm. instead of, if you don't give me $10,000, you know. No, none of that, the guy says, can you do 100 bucks a month? And I said, I guess, I think I can, maybe. He says, no problem, pay me when you can. And he got the work done. And again, so thankful for those opportunities. Wow. 
And I mean, 28 years later, I'm here in Seattle, have webbed feet. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So then from there, I, I guess you built your, um, I was listening earlier today to the Tiny Desk concert that you did. Oh, yeah. Um, in 2019. I love that piece. Um, that first one that you played, it kind of starts out, you know, sort of quiet, and then it just explodes into this <laughs> just big sound. And there's, I, I had to look again, because I was like, it said it was a trio, but man, that sounds like so much bigger. I, I don't know. I, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, that's, 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 a, you describe that. Can I describe it as well as you did?
have to put a link to that. Um, yeah, yeah, put the link there. The, the piece is called pontapé, which in Portuguese is like when you kick something. Ponta means mm. point, pé means foot. So pontapé is when you kick the ball, you know, a strong, mm. strong kick that sends something spinning. And that's exactly what it is. How long has that, have, have you had that trio? How long have you guys been playing together? Well, those, uh, Tim Carey and Jeff Bush have been playing together then because Tim was my student at Cornish College of the Arts. And Jeff Bush I've been playing with since, what, 96, 97. So we, we sound good together. We have a really tight trio. We also have a quintet that has Jeff Bush on percussion. And another bass player, Chuck Deardorff and Ben Thomas on vibes and Mark Ivester on drums. We just played this weekend in Yakima. So, uh, so having a five-piece and a three-piece, which are quite different than each other, really allows you to explore the music in different flavors. Mm -hmm. So when I play with the trio, it's a lot looser, this kind of thing, just the waves just build up. When I play the quintet, there's some more composition structure, but also it opens up to places that are completely loose. So this gives me, and then I play alone solo, I have a new record, solo record coming out. Mm. And uh, that's just me on the piano. So that's still, so these are all like channels, flavors. And I could even play the same piece with a trio as I play with the quintet, as I play solo, but it's going to sound completely mm. different yeah. because of this different settings that they exist. Did you do this um, solo album because of the pandemic? It was just easier to record on your own? It was, again... Uh, I don't question anymore how things happen. I just kind of mm -hmm. follow along. There was a guy, there's a piano store in Bellevue, Washington here that has uh, one piano of this kind of piano that I played with before. As a matter of fact, I have another solo album recorded on a Fazioli. I actually have two records made on Faziolis. Mm -hmm. uh, but so they have this beautiful, the Fazioli is a very kind of different instrument. I'm not endorsed by them. So I don't have to like make advertisement for them they're very expensive i would never be able to own one in my life but in a way that what they have by being handmade is that they're real like living pieces of trees with metal hmm. strung rather than just being a piece of furniture mm -hmm. like most pianos are so they are like living things and they in the in the sense that when you start playing them they start to change how they sound and of course, you change how you sound because they change. So there's a sense of when you start playing a piano like this during more than 10 minutes, something happens in you oh. and in the piano. Like the piano oh. starts to r respond. Huh. Mm -hmm. And you, of course, as an artist, <laughs> you respond to that. So, I, so this guy asked me to do one little thing because they wanted to do a demo for the store. So I went in in November. So it was pandemic. I was alone in this room. There was a guy in another room behind glass. And he was recording as I was playing. And I played for like an hour straight. I stopped between songs. But I just played for an hour straight. And this is coming out. Now. There's already a couple tracks up on YouTube. And I can link that. I can send you the link later. Yeah, that'd be great. So, and the whole record comes out next month. Hmm. Which is about an hour of solo piano. And the guy who recorded used like six microphones. So it's like acoustically it's like you really capture the whole vibration of the hmm. piano playing you know you hear the pedals you hear the you hear the whole thing it's not just kind of like a there's not a lot of production we just recorded that way then we mastered it and that's it hmm. 
Oh, I look forward to hearing Very live, that. very live. Yeah, cool. Can you tell us about your experience? Um, it wouldn't be a, a, a Brazilian beat podcast if we didn't mention California Brazil camp. <laughs> um, about your experience when, when Hermetra Pascual was at California Brazil camp and, and you were there as well. Can you yeah, of course. talk I mean, about that experience? Uh, uh, Brazil camp is one of the hippest events that I've ever been to. I mean, I started going there, I think, on the first one. Oh, really? In 98 or something like this. And I pretty much went every year for several years. And then I didn't go for a few years just because circumstances, you know, I, I was often going to Brazil around the same time. And uh, the schedules never really aligned. But then in 2017, 10 years after my last time at Brazil camp, the uh, metal came. And of course, I wanted to be there too. So that was a lot of fun. We got to hang out for a week and to see Hermeto in such a beautiful place has always been a dream of mine because I'm the kind of person who feels very much at home in the middle of the woods, the Redwoods, Sonoma County. This is just some of the most mm -hmm. amazing places to be vibration-wise. So being there with Hermeto and making music for a whole week was like a giant pleasure, just a, a big... You know, it's, it's like my worlds collide. The world of biology, the world of music, Hermeto, my mm. friends, my family. So everything becomes like one, one giant thing. And when it's not often that happens. So when it happens, you have to really appreciate it and value it. And his son Fabio was there as well. Oh, of right? course. Fabio's my brother. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. as a matter of fact, we're, we're, we talk all the time. I was just with Hermeto a few days ago. As I said, he's sending new things. He keeps sending me stuff. And uh, I think we're going to work together next year as well. In the oh, UK, wonderful. A tour with Big Bang. One of my favorite memories of that Brazil camp was just seeing him um, work with other artists. Oh, yeah. You know, it was just great to see him work with, I don't know, somebody like Margarete. Yep. Who right. Was, yep. I mean, that's Hermeto. About. You remember that Hermeto, even though he's super like a eccentric individualistic musician for decades from 19 from the early 1960s maybe 63 until 19 i think he lived in sao paulo for like 15 years and his gig in sao paulo was playing accompanied singers in mm -hmm. nightclubs so he accompanied everybody that you might think of as great present singers Elisa regina and uh, elisette cardoso and uh, Laide costa all these people, he played with all of them. So that's one side of our method that people don't know is that he was a great kind of like club date musician. He was part of the whole Bossa Nova thing, but mm -hmm. he was not credited as being part of the whole Bossa Nova. Hmm. He was in Rio in 1958 when the Bossa Nova thing was happening. Our method oh, was there wow. playing in the Bottles Bar with the, all the other great players. It's just that he never wanted to be part of any movement that had a name. Or a label. Mm. What is that? Is that a Groucho Marx quote? Says, I don't want to be a member of any club that would take me for a member. <laughs> <laughs> it's either Groucho Marx or Mark Twain. It's one of those. One <laughs> of those guys. Yeah, but that, that was a matter. He never wanted to be a part of this wave of something or that wave of something. But in a way, he was part of all of it. And what? Kind of his own wave. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And what what was his feedback after camp? 
Oh, he always loved. You see, Hermeto is not a person that, if you ask him, hey, Hermeto, how was that thing last year? He's like, what? Because, you know, have you ever seen that cartoon that says, like, dog calendars? When they, you take they have the calendar, then you flip a page, it says today. The next day it says today. And right. the next page says, that's Hermeto. <laughs> He's like, he lives in a constant state of today. So if That's you ask him, moment. it's funny, he might remember something from th the other day. Actually, one of the last times I sat down with him, I recorded him telling stories of his beginning as an accordionist in the 1950s in northeastern Brazil. So he remembered the whole story about how he started his first gig, how he hmm. got fired and got hired again. All this thing. He told hmm. the whole story. He knew. But if you ask him about, you remember like, I made a record, all of Hermeto's music with André Memari. Hermeto played on it. Then André Memari goes to talk to Hermeto, say, Hermeto, it's me from that record. Hermeto says, what record? Memari <laughs> 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 writes to me saying, Hermeto didn't remember. He recorded it. And that's Hermeto too. So it's okay. The goal is not, I mean, of course, he will remember being in the middle of the trees. That he will not forget. Mm -hmm. But who was there, how he was, and where he flew to or from, none of these things would. He could be mm. in Mars or in the Bay Area or Sonoma County, whatever. <laughs> he must be a master meditator. You know, you're always trying to like stay in the moment. <laughs> well, in a way, that's what music is for a matter. Yeah, he, true. He sits there, he picks a piece of paper, he's there. He's not in the, sometimes when you think that people like this need like peace and quiet. No, I, there, there's a video actually on YouTube my wife filmed it. We were doing kind of like a Brazil camp in Ubatuba in 2010. Diana might know about this. When Dennis mm -hmm. went heard, and yeah, they had this camp in Brazil. And Hermeto's composing. And there's a band playing in the room next door, playing some salsa music led by John Calloway. Nothing to do. And there's a TV on with a game, a soccer game. Hermeto's writing on the wall. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and people say, oh, you want us to turn off the sound? Says, no, 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 it's okay, leave it on. It helps me. So he's listened to all these distractions and he's writing this music. And then mm -hmm. in the end, we play the music. It has nothing to do with the music. That we... He'll do this with our band, where sometimes you write something very aggressive and atonal, like rah, 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 kind of like a... And then he sits in the middle of it and he writes something like. <laughs> so as he's listening to the rah, 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 he's writing like a lullaby. Wow. So that's his kind of meditation, I guess. <laughs> Amazing. So Jovino, you've been teaching a lot. You've been doing a lot of online teaching this past year, you were mentioning. Can yeah. you talk about that? that yes, thank you. Um, you see, for since I came to Cornish College of the Arts as a student in 93. Uh, a year later, I became a teacher. And I taught there, and I became eventually a full-time core faculty, professor of music, blah, blah, blah. And then last year, as the pandemic hits, I got fired. Hmm. And for no reason, I mean, I mean, other than their own reason. I guess they have a corporate world, they say we're restructuring. Mm. <laughs> that means somebody's getting, getting axed. All right. But in a way, the first 10 seconds, I kind of go, oh, really? So now I have no more, no more job, no more gig. 
And then it's not even a matter of reinventing. You have to invent something to really be creative. And in that sense, my family was amazing because they helped in inventing with me a new job. Like I've made my own job description. I'm going to teach Brazilian music online. And things were lucky because I had just bought a new computer so and the microphone, so I had the gear to start teaching. So I got fired in May, in May, same month, like two weeks later, I'm already teaching some Brazilian music courses. I first did a series called Five Centuries of Brazilian Music. Then I've done something on Hermeto's music. Then I've done uh, Shoro. I've done Samba. And now I'm starting a new one this Thursday, the 17th, which is a weekly series of two-hour sessions called Brazilian Rhythms. So what it is is that we talk about the rhythms. We break them down, but not in a jargon, academic way. I mean, I can provide scores and all those things for people who want to see those things. But it's more about understanding, feeling. So it's not just aimed at musicians. Mm-hmm. I have journalists, uh, DJs who take these courses because they just want to learn more about the music that they like and to be able to, you know, to know up from down, you know, okay, this is a samba, this is a bayon, this is a maracatu, by understanding how the, the beams hold the building up, you know, the architecture of the music. Mm-hmm. How is the music supported? What kind of hand claps happen? What kind of steps happen on this musical? But once you have that, and I can demonstrate playing that on the piano or on the pandeiro or on the flute or whatever instruments I might have around me, so people ask questions, and I show a lot of examples. I play stuff from my... The other thing that's lucky is because I have a, a record collection in my computer of maybe about probably 20,000 tunes or something like this. So this, and I'm kind of like a collector of old historical stuff, music recorded in the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, plus a lot of my own cassette tape recordings that I've done over the years, the Hermetos band, that kind of stuff. So I can call it up any point and just say, listen to this, kaboom, and it's playing. And then I can share scores, I can play. So that kind of like gives people a more 360 degree view of the music than just looking at the score or just listening to the recording, any of those things alone. So now you get it kind of broken down, but not analytically. It's more holistically. Our friend uh, here in Portland, Jay Maurer, took the one that you did on Samba a few months ago. Yeah, he loved it. He he recommended it um, really highly. Will you be repeating some of these um, classes uh, that you've already done? Yeah, I uh, not only I do repeat, but I also have them archived. Hmm. So on my website, you can also select to purchase an access pass so you can listen to the entire Ah, at your own so you can stream it from you know online folders oh cool so that kind of stuff is good because people but i do like because when i repeat something i never repeat it so i also do like listening sessions where you would take records that i produce mostly have metal records that i produce but my own records too and we do like a listening session in which I kind of tell the story behind that track that we're listening, how it was done, when it was composed, who played on it. I have pictures from studio sessions. So stuff like this gives people 
an insight into the process rather than just looking at the product, which is like the final thing. Yeah, cool. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, we'll definitely post um, on our website and on our social media. Thank you. When you start, well, you're going to be teaching this new one. Is this yeah. one full? No, well, actually, I have a handful of spots. I don't like to crowd them too much. Mm -hmm. But uh, I still could probably take a half a dozen people if they would like to. It's on my website. Just click on the lessons tab. And if you guys put the link there. And even if you start, if you miss the first one, you can still get on and listen to the recordings of the first one. Oh, cool. Yeah, I don't think this episode will come out before Thursday. You guys but, we'll, uh, but we'll post. It. Yeah, yeah we'll post about it. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. And, Shavina, you've had all these experiences. Are you still uh, on track to produce a musical memoir? I think in a way, all these things, including today, what we're talking about, is mm -hmm. a musical memoir. Sure. So this kind of stories, yes, I, I, I've been writing a lot of stuff, but uh, the way that I like to make music is like I do things that eventually will gel together into something. I don't want to, I, I, in the way the stories happen, I, I'm not a very big fan of stories that start in the beginning. And mm -hmm. then this happened. And then the, kind of like a... Sure. A, uh, what do you call it? A ticker tape parade of events. <laughs> I that for me is not the way I see music. I like to go back and forth. So I like to read. A, uh, so one of the things that I started to do is to compile, for instance, given the Hermeto years, I compiled a hundred events. A hundred, one hundred. Wow. No, actually, no, ninety-nine. I was going to do a hundred. My wife said, "Do ninety-nine. It's a better number." <laughs> and she was right. So. 99 events, and then people can open up anywhere. It's kind of like a Gary Larson book. Oh, right. You can just kind of, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. That somehow, it, it's making more sense. I'm having some issues with the linearity of it. Mm -hmm. One thing and then the other. So I like to write separate events. And, or we say in Portuguese, conta causa. You tell stories. Like you sit around the fire, you sit at a table at a bar, and people start telling a story, and then somebody else tells another one, and then you get reminded of another one that had nothing to do with that one. So you kind of, that bouncing back and forth in time points at the real nature of time, which is not really linear, especially the time of music. That's a cool idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so you've had a... A huge career, and you're an awesome storyteller. Can you tell us about one of your happiest moments, either playing music or, or teaching? Or... Well, every time, like for instance, being a Brazil camper there, Matt was one of those because there, it was a like the encounter, like the world's clashing of the, the life that I had in Brazil for all these years, and then the life of my friends in the West Coast, United States, Redwoods. You know, so that coming together in one place, like you, you go around the day pinching yourself. Is this really happening? Because normally these were things that exist in parallel, different universes, continents. And when they come together, suddenly you're like with one foot in each continent. Mm -hmm. Or going to Brazil and playing there. I have had that experience too, going there. Actually, I was there a few years ago. Hermeto came and sat in, in a gig that I was doing very close to where he lives. So this was like, oh my God, is this happening? You know, 
So that happened the first time I played with him. That happens any time now too. So this ability to, to look at time sideways and to put it together. And then when you play music, that, I mean, as a musician, there's nothing more inspiring than that, right? Because then you're going to play not to show off or to prove a point or you're going to play because it's a celebration of that moment there when you are there playing the music. So the music is sort of a meta reference, reference to itself. Right. Thanks. Um, also, now that things are opening up, are there any events that you'd like to talk about that are upcoming mm. outdoors anything like that yes i mean things are opening up I, as i said before i played a gig this weekend in yakima and there was a small crowd but people were there and it's amazing how it changes how we play when there's people there oh, we did yeah. a few gigs with no audience for the year shot chess festival in october mm -hmm. and then again in march then I, I've done a couple of things with the same trio from the Tiny Desk concert. That's not out yet. These are all recordings in a, in a hall with nobody there. Filmed and recorded, which is cool. I love it. It's kind of like a studio recording. Mm -hmm. But when you play in front of people, there's something else. There's, there's another element, which the sensitive musician will feel a change in the vibe. It's not because you're playing for other people. It's, it's because as the music bounces in people's ears and their bodies and their hearts, it kind of bounces back to you as a sort of resonance. It's a different thing if you clap your hands in a very dry room or if you clap your hands in a cathedral. Mm -hmm. You're going to hear bigger because you're actually hearing the, the air in the room reverberating, resonating mm -hmm. with what you did. So when we play music to a, in a place with people there, there's that sort of resonance with people's energy coming back to us. And when you feel that, it's like, it's kind of eerie. Oh my God, they actually heard that note. <laughs> so it makes it super important, but at the same time, you can't really like become super self-conscious and start policing yourself. Oh, I cannot make a mistake, that kind of thing, because of course you will. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you have to, so in a way you let loose, you relax and say, man, this is just, we're just having fun. So the whole thing in a way, and that's one thing that people feel when they hear us play. They say, well, you guys are really having fun, regardless of who I'm playing with. We have fun. So that kind of like the joy of making music together is contagious. And it's actually very healing, not only to the musicians, but to the people who hear it. Yeah. Especially so when, when people understand that the, the power of the acoustic vibrations, I mean, I was just reading today about this guy called Charles Kellogg. This is freaky. This is a guy in the 1920s who decided that he could put out fires at a distance using his voice. Hmm. You hear this? I mean, <laughs> he made some experiments in Berkeley, California. He made several full of scientists where they had a guy 10 miles away with a flame, a gas flame, and they had a little radio set up, very rudimentary. And this guy would actually start doing some sounds either by playing a, a piece of metal with a bow or by singing some notes. <laughs> and on the other side, the fire would put out. And they had people recording this, like you know, engineers looking at it saying, there was no way he could put out a fire 10 miles away. And they did it again, four miles away. Same thing, he could just put out a fire. Huh. So, I mean, 
I don't doubt that because music does that to people. It, it, it lights fires too. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely an, uh, that's some of my favorite groups to watch perform. And my favorite performance experience are, are when the players are having fun oh, yeah. that, you know, the audience just can tell, you know, that you can kind of tell when people are phoning it in too. Like, Oh yeah. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of what goes by the name jazz is that unfortunately, not all yeah. of it, but a lot of what it is is that people have practiced all their scales and licks so much that they do something very impressive. And people go, Oh my God, that's amazing. Then you come back the next day and you hear the same in the same place, <laughs> which then becomes for a music that's considered to be an improvisatory kind of like thing become more formulaic than classical uh -huh. music, where you, you will hear different interpretation every day. Hmm. But uh, it's okay. I mean, jazz is fun, but it can also be very boring. Mm -hmm. Because at the moment, you, as you said, when, when you get a sense that people are phoning it in, they're actually checking their emails. They're playing the lick. <laughs> yeah, right. They're thinking about yeah, what's the for text dinner? message that they got from what's somebody. What's for dinner? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Is there anything that you would like to share with our audience that, that we did not ask hmm. you that we skipped? Guys, you're making that a, that's the toughest question of the whole evening because uh, <laughs> <laughs> what have you not asked? I don't know. I There's love... something you'd like to share, like something, you know, something that you Well, I think that, um, of course, you know, I'd like to invite everybody to check out my work because uh, when your music is so wide, that it doesn't fit into any mm. of the categories mm. that exist. Because what do you play? Are you a jazz player? Are you a Brazilian? Are you a world musician? Are you a, a blah, blah, blah? Are you a conductor? Are you a classical composer? I mean, I say yes, and both, and not because I want to do everything, but because the way I was taught musically, there's no walls between this music and that music. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you have to understand that the feelings of music, that music has a rhythmic aspect, which is entirely geographical. Like if you go to Brazil, to Rio, to a specific hill on the north zone of Rio, you're going to hear a snare pattern on the samba. That if you go a mile away from there, it's a different hill, it's already a totally different snare pattern. Mm -hmm. So that, that kind of geographic GPS quality of music is there. But above that, there's also a universal character that regardless where the zip code is, there's something which carries through. And that's one of the things that sparks me to do more music is the ability to play with people from Mali, from Cuba, from China, from India, Native Americans. It gives me as much pleasure as playing music with people from Brazil or in the Pacific Northwest. So that kind of like makes that universality of the music while being respectful of the ge geographical flavors, the colors that make the music be unique to that little corner of the woods. So this understanding this is what I've been doing all the time and my love of travel, my love of playing music combined to explore. I love those naturalists. The word well, the biologists in the old days, they're called naturalists. They'll go into nature and just, you know, go get lost in the Amazon, show up three years later, you know? So that kind of stuff, we love doing that with music. Mm. We dive into music when we emerge at the other end of it, 
having learned something and people can witness. They can be part of the process too. That's what I like. I love that. Great. It's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> Just let that hang there for a minute. <laughs> That's some reverb at this point. Hello, hello, yeah. hello, hello. <laughs> the cavernous voice. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Jovina. That was such a great conversation. Oh, you guys are great. You you ask good questions, both of you, Courtney and Diana. Very thank nice. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we know you guys loved that conversation conversation with Jovino. He's such a delightful person and we hope you go and check out his stuff. Um, definitely check out his uh, Tiny Desk concert. And we'll have all the links to all of his workshops, his lessons, everything will be at our website. So I wanted to give a little shout out uh, to Nate in London. Um, he wrote us a little message and just sending some suggestions uh, for, a get, for a guest and just his manner. It was just so great to get a message. It's great to get messages from any of you um, just because it feels like you're our friends. <laughs> I was telling this to Courtney and I think Sylvia the other day that it was just nice because um, there's so many of you out there and we do get messages and yeah, I feel like you guys are our friends. So thanks for sending your messages. Yeah, don't hesitate to reach out. We don't bite. If you guys want to take lessons, I'm taking a fantastic lesson with my friend Esteban Diaz um, with uh, Lucas Eduardo from Duetto. I'm loving it and learning a lot and I feel like I'm improving a lot he's he's a great teacher so um, if you have a hero out there if you've seen somebody posting a lot on on social media contact them they'll probably teach you so um, yeah lots of folks out there if you can go to uh, thebrazilianbeat.com and click on resources there's links there to a lot of the different teachers uh, information how to get a hold of them and get in touch and a lot of them most of them are on instagram and they like mm -hmm. to get messages there more than anywhere mm -hmm. else mm -hmm. if you don't have their whatsapp so uh try them on instagram if you see they're posting great videos mm -hmm. anything else we have to say oh i wanted to um congratulate courtney and her cohorts who are restarting uh, the original samba band from Portland, the Lions of Batucada. Um, so she and our friend Brian Davis, who is also a guest, Esteban, who she just mentioned, and Jason Fritz are restarting the group, doing lessons. You talk more, Courtney. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. Um, yeah, it's been a long time coming. So Jason and Esteban and I had sort of pre-pandemic started a new thing but it, it didn't happen because you know pandemic was happening and but we teamed up with brian brian wanted has been wanting to restart the lions and so now um all four of us are are making it happen so yeah we're super excited and a lot of people in town seem to be really excited yeah and there's i think so people going to be driving in from seattle and people oh driving goodness. maybe people driving up from eugene so people <laughs> it's kind of insane so crazy yeah lots of interest and rhythm traders has been as they were in the past I hear, I wasn't a part of the Lions in the past, but as they were in the past, they've been super helpful. So they've been helping us get the word out and sharing to their, their you know, social media, which has thousands of people. So that's been really nice. Yeah, we're, we're I couldn't be more excited about it. <laughs> yeah. And you really have, you cool. have lessons coming up, right? 
Mm-hmm. On Saturday. Yep. Saturday at 11. Saturday's 11. If you come to Portland, if you guys are ever in town, Saturday's at 11. Just get in touch and I'll let you know where they're at. They're, they're, right now we're having them outside by the waterfront, but eventually we'll move indoors once kind of the pandemic settles down. If the pandemic settles down, we're going to move indoors and, and yeah, every Saturday. Beginning, intermediate, advanced, mm-hmm. everything? All levels. Yeah, the cool thing about having four people is that we can handle all levels. All of us have experience teaching beginners and... Um, most of us have experience teaching, um, you know, more into the more techniques of how you play samba. So we can show people things and, and get people going and get get the bateria chugging along. So yeah, it's yeah, it's cool being partnered with all these other people too because we all get along really well and yeah, just I'm excited. Awesome. Yeah, things are good. Looking forward to it. Kind of nervous actually. <laughs> All these people, like, oh, <laughs> it'll be fun. Yeah, it'll be super fun. It'll be fun just to see all these people, to see everybody that's yeah. coming out of the woodwork. Exactly. So. Mm-hmm. Cool. Mm-hmm. We hope you liked that episode. We really did. Um, like Courtney mentioned, we have an interview with uh, Sheena from Hichimo Solidario coming up and other awesome interviews, one at a time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thank you for listening, everybody. Take care. Ciao.
Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, what a pleasure to be here. This is a 